That story that uh, John had just read, I think, is one of the more disturbing stories in the Bible. Uh, it's confusing, too, in my opinion, and certainly strange to our contemporary ears. Ananias and Sapphira, one minute upright and sweating, the next minute stone dead. It's not your typical Sunday school flannel graph story. See, kids, that's what happens to people who lie and cheat and steal from the church. So bring your offerings every Sunday or else. Talk about penny power. Whew. Sorry. It's a, it's a strange story. Um, now, it doesn't begin that way, which is why I asked uh, Jonna to read from Acts 4 as well. It doesn't begin that way because in the beginning, everyone gave everything for the sake of everybody. That's the way the Spirit rolled back then. Fresh from the blending of, uh, blessing of Pentecost and with a sudden influx of new believers to attend to, the disciples instituted their communal experiment and everyone cooperated. So all is well until Ananias and Sapphira decide to skim a bit off the top to hedge their bets, to hold some back just in case the whole communal thing goes south. And Peter rebukes them for lying and cheating and cheating and then lying, for pretending to be fully in communion with other believers, for daring to bring less than all. Peter rebukes them and they drop dead. Just goes to show you what happens to people who don't take their giving seriously. Well, a couple of weeks ago at the church retreat, Jim Haverstick asked me why it is that pastors seem to have such a hard time talking about money. After all, the Bible contains more instruction about money than it does pretty much anything else. So, if the Bible is so full of money talk, why don't pastors talk more about money? Nothing like a nice, easy question to occupy me while I was eating my donut. Um, fortunately, Jim offered his own answer to the question. What Jim said was this. He thinks maybe pastors are reluctant to talk about money because they depend upon the weekly offerings for their salaries. And so it makes sense that a preacher would feel shy and awkward about preaching in ways that might seem self-serving. Then there's the fact that every year come budget time, the whole congregation sees exactly what the pastor makes. It's all up there for discussion and debate, everything from salary to the cost of health insurance to the development allowance. Every year we are all reminded just how expensive it is to house and feed a pastor and how big a chunk of a church budget goes just for that. So saying anything that might appear to be asking for more feels awkward and so tends to be avoided. But I think there's more than that going on here. Um, it's not just pastors who are reluctant to talk about money. Uh, you know the old line about three topics to avoid in polite conversation, right? Sex, religion, and money. Um, there's something too personal about these things, something that makes them hard to talk about. Even with our friends, when someone brings one of them up in conversation, everybody starts to squirm. Now, it makes sense to me that sex ought to be private, not something we just blab about to whoever's listening. Some things really are better left unsaid. But when did religion become private? I mean, who decided that anyway? And money. I mean, it seems so odd to me that money is something that so many of us flaunt through conspicuous consumption, present company excluded, um, and at the same time, at the same time won't talk about it openly. Well, there's the stereotypical yuppie on the make who only talks about how much they earn and how much they hope to earn. But for most of us, money is our own little secret how much we make, how much we spend, how much we give, which brings us to the topic for today. Now, again, Jim Haverstick started it all. <laughs> In April, Jim sent me an email inviting me to think creatively about money, and if I could, <laughs> if I could, to preach a sermon on the topic. 
The focus of Jim's email is on the various terms that we Christians uh, use when we talk about money and about giving money. The Bible speaks of tithes, offerings, and gifts as if they were all distinct things. We, on the other hand, tend to use those words interchangeably. Why is that? Why specifically do we seem to shy away from the word tithe? Why do we prefer the words offerings and gifts? Is it because tithe is too specific, too bound up? with percentages and so too easily turned into a legalistic yardstick against which our faithfulness is measured. Well, anyhow, when I got Jim's email, I admit my first response was, Oi! I mean, I appreciate a thoughtful, wise parishioner as much as the next pastor, but seriously, he's going to make me work? Then once I got over myself for a moment, I thought, um, how cool is this, a thoughtful, wise parishioner? So... Anyways, let me admit, first of all, that I am not by any means an expert on this topic, which actually contributes to my skittishness about it. Uh, I've never mastered the ins and outs of the Old Testament teaching around tithes and offerings, so I'm fully confident that some of you will know better. Uh, And the rest of you may wish to go ahead and take your pinch of salt right now and then go home and do your own research. Um, End of humble caveat. Anyways, being no expert, I did what I always do when confronted with a topic about which I know less than I should. I hit the books. In this case, I went to my trusty Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible, edited by David Noel Friedman, Astrid B. Beck, and Alan C. Myers, and here's some of what I read. For the Israelites, the tithe mostly took the form of crops and animals. Um, All the seeds and fruits belonged to God, and a tenth of all the flocks and herds were also holy to the Lord. People were to bring a tenth of their grain, wine, oil, and firstborn animals to the sanctuary, and we see uh, that being played out in our reading from Nehemiah. They would then have a meal together from these first fruits in the sanctuary, kind of like a potluck with God present, uh, sharing of all the bounty of the harvest. Tithes were used to support the poor and the vulnerable, widows, orphans, and aliens, and Levites benefited from the tithe since they were not allowed to inherit. Now, once Israel had kings, As you can imagine, everything changed. Ties started to become blurred with taxes and were even used to support the king's army, which is not what God intended. But once Israel got its human king, it inevitably fell into the trap of having to pay for the king's upkeep and the king's wars. Anyway, that's what I came up with from an admittedly extremely cursory study of the matter. And here's what I think that extremely cursory study might mean for us. I think we can safely consider the tithe to be that portion of our giving that's to be used to attend to the needs of the congregation and to support the contemporary priests and Levites among us, the hired servants of the faith community. The tithe also enables the congregation to be generous in giving to those in need. And with a shout out to Steve Erickson and the Property Commission, let me say that uh, tithes were also used for the maintenance of the sanctuary and eventually for the building and then rebuilding of the temple, or in our case, the maintenance and upkeep for a meeting house and its attendant property. So it seems to me both what we call internal and external giving can fall under the heading of ties. So that's what I learned about ties. Now we Mennonites, we are a jot and tittle kind of folk. We want all the deets and we want them spelled out in triplicate, underlined and fully explained with everything duly footnoted for future reference. In short, we want to know, so how much should we be giving anyway? What about the percentage? And once we settle on a number, is it drawn from our net or our gross earnings? But before we get too far along in our calculations, somebody else 
will inevitably ask, well, aren't such questions legalistic? And aren't we Christians supposed to avoid legalism? Aren't we people of grace, which in this case means the freedom to make our own choices about things like money? Well, in my exchange with Jim, he made the case for establishing a number, a specific percentage when tithing. As Jim said, the 10% is easy to calculate and it's biblical. And I think that makes good sense. I think it makes sense to establish some guidelines, if not rules, which help us keep track of how well we're doing. So we set a standard and then together we strive to meet it. And when we don't meet it, we know that we have work to do. And when we do meet it, we give thanks and consider bumping it up a little bit just to keep us awake and moving. At the same time, grace has to be kept in the mix, meaning that even if we find setting a percentage helpful, well, let's not go all legalistic about it and start telling other people to pony up at the same rate that we do. Such busybodiness runs counter to the spirit of giving, in my opinion. So ultimately, maybe it's not so much about the exact percentage that matters, at least not in a legalistic way. Maybe it's more about recognizing just how blessed we are and then offering our ties uh, as generously as we have been blessed, which seems to me to likely be above 10%. Uh, gratitude and generosity, it seems to me, are the guiding lights for giving. And that's a point we'll come back to later, but first let's think a bit about offerings. For us, as I said, offerings and tithes are pretty much interchangeable. It all goes into the same basket, right? Literally. Um, but turning again to my trusty Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible, edited by David Noel Friedman, Astrid B. Beck and Alan C. Myers, here's a bit of what I found there about offerings. Now, with offerings, we get into the whole sacrificial system. Offerings were made to God, uh, not to the community. The community benefited from the giving of offerings, but the primary recipient uh, was God. Burnt offerings in general were, intent, were intended as gifts for, to God, which God consumed in the fire. Peace offerings, Leviticus 3, were gifts to God, which people then ate together with God. Offerings for purification, Leviticus 4, or just that, offerings made in order to make someone ritually pure again. For example, uh, when Joseph and Mary go to the temple uh, to make an offering following Mary's giving birth. There were individual offerings, there were corporate offerings. Now, contrary to, contrary to what many of us grew up believing, the offerings were not intended to appease God or make God happy. That's the way the pagans would have thought about it. For Hebrews, offerings were gifts given in gratitude to God, even those given in response to the law. God had made a way for people to have communion with God, symbolized by the common meal following the sacrifice. And the Israelites knew that that was something to be grateful for. Now here things seem a bit um, murkier to me when trying to discern a contemporary equivalent. If ties are for the benefit of the community, and to enable that community to be generous with those in need all around them, they seem to me, at least, to correspond fairly neatly with our own internal and external giving. But what would be the contemporary equivalent to sacrificial giving, to the offering? Well, certainly one offering we make is what we've been doing so far this morning. We make an offering of worship and praise. Uh, another might be when we give over and above or give sacrificially. Uh, just because we're glad for what God has done for us. And we want to celebrate that by offering our gifts. And again, it's not about making God happy or in some other way keeping God from being angry with us. It's about being grateful for everything we've been given and then sharing it all freely and generously. It's about admitting that all that we have comes from God and then responding to that most basic fact of our faith by giving beyond any obligation or responsibility to the law, giving freely over and above and beyond such considerations. 
with abandon out of the sheer joy and gratitude that we feel for God and God's goodness to us. So thinking of our own context, maybe we could say we would make an offering to God toward the housing project, above and beyond our regular giving, because we're so grateful that we have homes of our own. Or maybe we'd give a gift to God above and beyond our regular giving to be used in order to provide clean water to someone in Benin out of gratitude to God for having clean water. Again, I think offerings are outside of any calculations. Instead, they come directly and entirely from joy and gratitude and a desire that everyone be just as blessed, just as joyful as we are. Well, so far, I've been thinking about this in an Old Testament way. The people of Israel obviously had a system in place for calculating the amount of tithes, a schedule for the offerings, and a system for collecting them and then distributing them properly. Actually, come to think of it, we have a system like that too, except it's uh, created by the Stewardship Commission. Um, anyways, Christians threw that Old Testament system uh, out with the theological bathwater uh, a long time ago, but if we don't follow that Old Testament model and maybe even believe that we shouldn't, then how are we to think about giving? In several places in his letters, Paul calls on the Jesus communities under his care to make donations, and these donations might be used to provide for the needs of their teachers, or they might be used for those in need beyond the confines of the local congregation, like the collection that Paul took up for the sake of the Christian community in Jerusalem. Then there's that story from Acts 4 where the earliest Christians were expected to give all they had to be shared with the community, a kind of first century Marxist utopia with everything shared in common from each according to her ability to each according to her need. Now it's important to remember, I think, that for those early Jesus followers who were also Jews, the old system, well, what we call the old system, remained in place. Those sacred obligations to give were still in effect. Now, over time, Christians abandoned the sacrificial system with its burnt offerings. For them, the sacrifice of Jesus made any further such offerings unnecessary, and the book of Hebrews makes that case. The giving called for by Paul was always to benefit the work of the church, whether through providing for the needs of leaders or by making possible the sharing of resources with those in need. Again, think about the collection for the church in Jerusalem, a community that was suffering persecution and other disruption and so was in desperate need of aid. Such gifts were what Jim Haverstick would call plus giving, giving above and beyond the requirements of the law. And over time, as the requirements of the law lost their hold on the church, that plus giving would morph into what I think we call offerings. Anyway, after all of that, I think we can identify a principle or three that might speak to Jim's question and our need for some clarity when it comes to giving. First of all, uh, the needs of the community are my needs. This connects to Paul's famous body metaphor in 1 Corinthians. We're all parts of one body and so have an obligation to see that no part goes uncared for. And one way we do that is by sharing our finances and other gifts with the body. No one should go uncared for in the Christian community, especially those most vulnerable, like widows and orphans. Number two, generosity seems to be the key. We keep coming back to that sharing without regard to our own needs, trusting God to provide all we need. As Jesus said, not letting anxiety catch us in its grip, but instead having faith in God's care and provision, trusting God to provide, even the coin needed to give back to God via the temple tax, and then being generous in turn, whether it's with five loaves and two fishes or by selling everything we have and giving it to the poor. 
It's all about a generosity that is based firmly in trust in God to provide. And number three, let's not forget that haunting parable from Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. Jesus makes plain that we serve him when we serve others, and that when we fail to serve others, we fail to serve Jesus. So every gift we give, no matter whether it's our money or our time or our food or a visit, we give to Jesus. And if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, then we ought to do everything we can to serve Jesus by serving others. So even though, in my opinion, we Christians have no obligation to follow the Old Testament system, we are still obliged to give generously for the benefit of the community and those in need and to recognize that all that we give, no matter its form, we give to Jesus. In response to God's most generous gift, we give generously. That's a pretty high standard, and as I said, it's one we bumped into before this morning, but it bears repeating. Gratitude and generosity should be our guides in determining how much we give. Gratitude and generosity, it seems to me, cut the legs out from under our human tendency to be legalistic and rigid. Gratitude and generosity are what make it possible to be what the Bible calls cheerful givers. We give out of a spirit of joy, a joy that comes from recognizing and celebrating all that God has given us. We give generously because God has given so generously to us. We give freely because we believe that God will provide all of our needs. We give above and beyond what might seem reasonable because of our gratitude to God for God's own unreasonable and unwarranted and even limitless gifts, gifts that God pours out on the just and the unjust, which pretty much covers all of us, which means that every last one of us is called to gratitude and generosity. And actually, when we think about it this way, um, when we think about money in terms of gratitude and generosity, it becomes a whole lot easier to talk about. When we peel away the rules and the legalism and all the anxiety that we feel about making too much money or not making enough money, when we peel that all away and focus instead on gratitude and generosity, it seems to me it is easier to talk about money even in the church. Well, by now you may be uh, thinking I've abandoned old Ananias and Sapphira, and I'll admit it's tempting, but for the sake of symmetry and nothing else, let me end at the beginning, because I think that takes this whole conversation to another level entirely, one that I think is related to the baptism that we celebrated earlier this morning. So much of the creepiness of that story, um, I think, comes from thinking about it literally. If we think about it as an actual event in history, then we have a bunch of awkward questions to consider. Like, isn't being struck dead a bit of an overreaction to a little cheating? Does God really just casually snuff us out when we sin? How does this image of God relate to the God revealed to us in Jesus, who so famously forgave Levi and Zacchaeus for much more egregious acts of larceny? How to explain Peter's apparent role in this divine execution? What in the world did the rest of the community learn from it? Does God really desire that we live and worship and serve one another in a spirit of fear? Lots and lots of questions arise, at least for me, when I read this story literally. And maybe that's how I'm supposed to read it. Maybe that's how we're supposed to read it. Never mind the disturbing questions. God is not tame, as they say, and God is not to be domesticated. So maybe we are to read the story literally. Suppose, though, that we read it as a parable. What if we read it not as history, but as a story designed to teach us something about what it means to be dead to sin and alive in Christ? What if we read the story as parable, not history? Well, let's give it a try. Let's read the story of Ananias and Sapphira the same way that we would read the story, say, of the Good Samaritan or the Lost Coin and see what we can see. Well, when I read the story as a parable, rather than getting tangled up in confusing questions, questions which seem to me to undermine 
what we've come to know about God through the gospel witness, I think I can listen more clearly for what seems to me to be the deeper message, the message that challenges us without confusing us. No longer needing to fret about what seems to be a harsh and capricious act of God, we can ask instead, what is it that Luke thinks we need to know? What is so important, so vital, that Luke would tell such a shocking story to communicate it? Well, read as a parable, this is what I hear in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. These are some of the necessary things that I believe Luke wants us to know by way of this shocking parable. Number one, Luke wants us to know that our commitment to the community is as deep as our commitment to Jesus. They cannot be separated from each other. Both are, as they say, all in. Both require an extravagant trust, a complete surrender, and an ongoing confession of dependence. Number two, Luke wants us to know that when we engage in behaviors which jeopardize or harm the well-being of the community or our relationship to it, we are in a concrete way repudiating the gift given to us in Christ's body. We are, in other words, denying our baptism, acting as if our baptism never happened, living like we're dead to Christ rather than alive in him. And three, finally, and maybe more to the point of this sermon, Luke wants us to know that there can be no holding back when it comes to the community, no reserving a little something in case things don't work out, no hedging our bets, no putting our own needs and our own fears that drive them above the needs of the community. Or to put it more positively, Luke wants us to know that everything we have belongs to Christ. Everything we have belongs to Christ's body. It's all a gift from Christ. It's all generously given. It's not ours to keep. It's ours to share. It's ours to give back. It is in that awareness that everything belongs to Christ that there is life. Holding back, hedging our bets, resisting full surrender is the way of death. Those alive in Christ exercise a free and generous hand. Those who withhold or hold back or in some other way hedge their bets, well, they're acting like dead people, not those raised in Christ. Ananias and Sapphira were dead before they even entered the room where Peter stood waiting. They just didn't know it until Peter made it abundantly clear. Those who act like the dead, well, they may as well be dead. Even when read as a parable, the story retains its power to convict us and the power to call us to hold to our baptism, to act as if we really were raised from death to life in Christ Jesus and to live and give as if it were true. Well, those are some things that I hear when I read the story of Ananias and Sapphira as parable, things which, yet again, I think point to gratitude. The point to generosity. Those alive in Christ are invited to a life guided by gratitude, a life characterized by generosity, a life that grows ever more to resemble the generous God who made us, the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. It's those who are dead who hoard and conspire and store away to the neglect of the community, to the neglect of Christ's body. Those who are truly alive in Christ give as if it never really belonged to them in the first place, so that they have no fear of want, and if they trust God completely, to take care of them now and, now and always. Those made alive in Christ, those raised with him from the waters of baptism are to live in gratitude, a gratitude expressed in generosity, a generosity that exemplifies their utter trust in the one who made them alive. If God can raise the dead, then surely there's no need to hide a few coins away for a rainy day. The God who raised us will keep us, so we have no need to hold anything back. We give and we give and we give, trusting that all we need will be provided. Well, it's beginning to look like once a pastor starts talking about money, he doesn't know when to stop. So 
Um, perhaps this is a reason for the community to ask the pastor not to preach about money. Anyways, let mercy prevail, and I'll bring this to a close. At the end of this um, admittedly tangled yarn ball of a sermon, um, what I really hope you hear is this, that when it comes to our money, when it comes to the giving of our money, what really matters is that we give generously and from the spirit of gratitude, a gratitude born in trust that God will provide for those who follow Jesus, a trust exemplified by our open-handedness when it comes to giving, and whether that giving is in money or time or talent, that's how born-again people ought to give. That's how people raised from the dead through the waters of baptism ought to live. The dead keep playing the angles and skimming what they can just in case God fails to deliver, while the living place their lives completely in God's hands, freeing their own hands to give freely, generously, and from a spirit of gratitude. Now, that's not as easy as it sounds. I think it takes a community to teach us how to live and to give generously and with gratitude, a community that doesn't try to bind us with a bunch of rules and regulations, a community that try, doesn't try to bully us into giving by scaring us with tales of God's hard and quick justice on those who don't cooperate. Giving generously from gratitude, born in trust, doesn't come naturally any more than loving our enemies does, right? It's something that we have to learn after being raised from the dead, like learning to walk and talk like people just made alive. And we work together as well to unlearn those ways of being that we followed when we were back in the empire, back when we were dead. Learning to give, whether we call it tithes or offerings or gifts, requires a community that practices becoming more grateful, more generous, more free-handed in every way. A community that's learning how to be cheerful in giving. A community that's practicing giving it all away, not holding anything back throwing itself entirely upon the generous and graceful God that we follow, a community that testifies to the importance of generosity, the importance of gratitude, and the importance of giving as a way of convincing ourselves that what we say is true, a community that demands everything from us for the sake of Christ, but that is also generous with its mercy, generous with its grace, generous with its invitation to keep on giving, to keep on learning generosity, to keep on developing the habit of gratitude, until the day comes when we'll learn what generosity really is, when Christ comes to make all things new. And on that day, we will no longer need to practice being grateful because we will know it by heart. Amen. Amen.